Well, our text is the New Testament lesson from 1 Peter 2. I think this is an appropriate text for Pentecost because it's a text which shows us the result or the fruit of the Spirit which was poured out by the ascended Christ. The Spirit produces a spiritual house. Namely, the church, which offers up spiritual sacrifices. So those are the two points that we're going to make in the sermon, the spiritual house and the spiritual sacrifices. They're sort of mixed together in the text, so we'll jump around a bit. But two points, spiritual house, spiritual sacrifices. So first, the spiritual house. Remember already what Peter's told us, right? We're in the middle of a series on 1 Peter. He said that we've been born again through the resurrection of Christ. Right? This mystery is something which happens through the sovereign work of the Spirit, through the Spirit in His freedom. The same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead raises us from death to life with Him. Not only that, Peter's told us that those who preach the Word to us did so by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Pentecostal gift of the Spirit accompanies the apostolic preaching, the preaching of the good news. And Peter says, we've embraced that news and had our hearts purified by it so that we can sincerely and fervently love one another from the heart. And that brings us to our text this morning in chapter 2. And as throughout, Peter's concerned that we understand who we are, who we are in Christ, and what we're called to do. Who we are, what we're called to do. What we've said, indicative, who we are, imperative, what we're supposed to do. Another way to say this is identity and task, or identity and calling. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, then, beginning of verse 4, as you come to him. It's important not to lose sight of this. The whole text is predicated on a people that have come to Jesus Christ and then Continually, as you come to him, they're coming perpetually to Christ. So, we've heard already, Peter said, that you know, we've heard the gospel, the word of the Lord. Heard the word of the Lord. So that by the Spirit, we can be brought to the Lord of the word. We've heard the word of the Lord, so we can be brought to the Lord of the word. Coming to Christ. So the word has brought us and is bringing us to the ascended Christ. Who is described here by the Apostle Peter as a living stone. It's a very strange metaphor when you think about it. Something of a contradiction in terms. He's a living stone, Jesus is, because he's raised. He's alive forevermore and he's the source of indestructible life. He's the fount of life. And he's a stone, the stone of which the Lord says in verse 6, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter is citing Isaiah 28 here. And in that context, the leaders of the Jerusalem elite, the leaders of the temple, the temple leaders, they thought the temple was secure and permanent, and it could never be destroyed. It's interesting, right? In the destruction of the temple in the 6th century B.C., 
through which Israel's carried off into Babylon, right? God cut off the public assemblies of his people by his own hand. And for 70 years, Israel could not gather at the temple. But the leaders thought that could never happen. But in the text, God promises that he's going to construct a new temple. He's going to construct a new temple on a new foundation. Peter goes on to describe Christ. uh, And here he's citing Psalm 118 as the stone which the builders rejected. The stone which has become the cornerstone. The stone which causes people to stumble and the rock which makes them fall. Now, if that language sounds familiar to you, it's because it's not only in the Old Testament, it's not only in the Psalms. Jesus himself tells this blistering parable against the Jewish leaders. It's in Matthew 21. It's called the parable of the tenants. And he cites this material at the climax of that parable. These are Jesus' words. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So Peter is citing the Old Testament, and he's reminding his readers of Jesus' own warning from these texts. So I want to notice a couple things here, four things actually, about this stone. First, Christ is the stone which was rejected by men. Rejected by men in general, you can see that in verse 4, but also rejected by the builders, the Jewish leaders, that means. That's in verse 7. So what's the relevance of this? Why does Peter go to this image here? Well, it's, it's really quite simple. These Christians are themselves being rejected. Harassed. So Peter's encouraging them, and he's encouraging us with the fact that the one who is the living stone, the cornerstone of the building, was also rejected. Perhaps not what we might think of as the most comforting words, but Peter is saying something like this The world hated Jesus, you can expect it to hate you, or at least to be resistant to you. Not everywhere, and not always, not in all cultures at all times, but as a general rule. No servant is above his master. And so Peter is telling, and he will make this clear as this chapter and the next unfold, he's saying to these scattered Christians in Asia Minor, your rejection is a sharing in Christ's rejection. Your suffering, and their suffering is lower level now. They're not being executed We're not not facing empire-wide suffering yet, but at this time, they are facing suspicion, harassment, and other kinds of abuse, slander and the like. But your suffering, Peter is saying, is a participation in Christ's sufferings. So that's the first thing to see about the stone. The stone was rejected, and that matters to us. That matters to us in the Christian life. The second thing is, Though rejected by men, the stone is chosen by God and precious. Precious here does not mean cute, right? It it means honored or highly valued. 
As in when Peter says, you are redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The thing of inestimable value. So Christ is the chosen and precious one. And you also, Peter says in verse 9, are a chosen people. So his point is that we share Jesus' dual fate. Rejected yet elect. The church shares Jesus' dual fate. Rejected yet elect. A third thing about this stone is that it cannot be ignored. It lies in everyone's path. Right? Peter says, to those who believe, the stone is precious. Believers come to Christ the living stone. But to those who don't believe, the stone functions in the same way it functioned for the Jewish leadership. It's a stone, Peter says, which the builders, the religious elite, rejected. And this, this is an interesting image, right? It's a picture of construction workers, like looking through quarried stones for the exact right stone that will fit as the cornerstone, looking for the one that's just right, right? And coming upon Christ himself, the living stone, and just callously discarding him onto the heap of rejected stones. The stone which the builders rejected. But, of course, he cannot simply be discarded. Because he's the stone which causes people to stumble and the rock which makes them fall. How one reacts to Jesus Christ determines the destiny of all men. Who do you say that I am? That famous question that our Lord asked his disciples is put to every human being by the Spirit of God. So the fourth thing about this living stone is that it is the cornerstone. That means the stone which is laid first in this new temple that God's building. And it's the stone to which every other stone is aligned. And this, of course, teaches us that Christ alone has preeminence in the church. That Christ in his, his life, Christ in his fullness, is the standard, the goal, the measuring line of Christian existence. We are to be fastened to looking to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone here then of a new house, a new temple, the spiritual house that God is building. And that, of course, is the church. This is probably pretty familiar, but Peter's doing something a little odd with some of this imagery, right? The the imagery here is um, a living, sort of organic, biological house. It's like biological architecture. That's something that's not found in nature. Right? He's got stones that are alive, and these stones are living, and they're fitted into other stones which are living, and they're growing, and they're creating this spiritual temple house. It's good to be reminded of this. Maybe it's basic, but it's good to go back and, and say, well, what does this text say to us? Well, it certainly says the church is not a physical structure. Right? Or a physical temple. Right? This, this is not the house of God. You are the house of God. In the spirit. The church is a spiritual edifice. Really not visible to the human eye. 
The mystery of the church's life is hidden with Christ in God. It's visible only to the eye of faith. So no earthly temple, no church building, no cathedral, right? no matter how grand, and they are, many of them are very grand, can do anything more than point, right? Can, it points to this radiant splendor, this hidden mystery of the temple that God is constructing. The temple that God himself is constructing. So, this is spiritual. A spiritual house. Not merely in the sense that it's not physical, but it also means it's the creation of the Holy Spirit. In short, Pentecost produces the church. Right? Pentecost produces the church. This is why, um, if you've been in the study on the Nicene Creed, the third part of the Nicene Creed, the first part's about the Father, the second part's about the Son, and the third part's about the Spirit. And under the Spirit is, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Spirit produces the church. Jesus had said in his earthly ministry that the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed. Remember that? The disciples said, look at all this, look at these beautiful buildings, Lord. He says, I tell you the truth, not one stone there will be left on top of each other. And he says, I'm going to replace that temple. And this shocked the authorities with the temple of my own risen body. So, Christ, the living stone, is laid as a cornerstone in Zion, in the heavenly city, the first stone in the new temple, the cornerstone. And you who embrace the gospel, then, you are a living stone, joined to that stone, built into that temple, that spiritual house. So it's a remarkable thing. This is a temple, a spiritual house. It exists in and by the Spirit, and it's scattered. There's no house like this, right? This is a house which is scattered in space, and it's scattered in time. It's scattered through the past. It's scattered across the present. It's scattered out into the future. It's scattered through the saints in heaven and in the saints on earth, through the living and the dead. This house is the house you're in. This house is the Zion of which Christ is the cornerstone. And this house now gathers the elect from every nation. The scattered transients, as these Asian Christians were called by Peter in his opening letter, right? Elect exiles of the diaspora. Goes and takes, takes the scattered transients from among the Gentiles. So verse 10 puts it this way. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, right? but now Pentecost, the Spirit's been poured out. Now you have received mercy. What has changed for these Gentiles between not being a people and being the people of God? Mercy. <laughs> Once you had not received mercy. Pentecost is the flooding of mercy into the world. Gathering the nations as the people, the spiritual house, the temple of the living God. Out of all the nations, God gathers us into what verse 9 calls the holy nation. God is creating one 
new holy nation. Which is just another way of saying the spiritual temple, the house that is the church. This holy nation, drawn from all the nations, is now God's unique, special, treasured possession. His unique people in the earth. Right? This holy nation, this spiritual house, now lives in this cosmic, uninterrupted assembly spanning heaven and earth. Right? That's the spiritual house created by the Pentecostal spirit of the ascended Christ poured out into the world. So let's talk about the second thing here, spiritual sacrifices. Now, the imagery here, as I've said, is is, um, different, right? Peter's stretching terms, living stones, spiritual houses, and the like. Um, He's trying to probe the mystery of the church. And notice this. We are not only the temple itself. So we are the temple but we are also the priests who serve inside and offer sacrifices in the temple. A spiritual house has spiritual people, Peter says, and they offer spiritual sacrifices. So verse 5, we're being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is a great short summary of the church's calling and ministry. Right? What is the church? If someone asked you, one could hardly do better than to say a spiritual house called to be a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I want to unpack this a little bit. I'm going to say three things about this little summary. First, we're a holy priesthood, consecrated, animated by the Holy Spirit. That's what holy here means. This is, again, this is the the fruit of Pentecost. The spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, creates a holy priesthood. Now, again, this language is familiar but I'd like to challenge you a little bit to hear it afresh. Right? This is what has rightly, aptly been called the priesthood of all believers. This is an astonishing thing. There is no special cast of priests in the New Covenant. Right? In the Old Covenant, you had priests. They had to be male. They had to be from the tribe of Levi. Only one of them could go into Holy of Holies, and that would be once a year. In the New Covenant... Every single person, male, female, slave, free, adult, child, has inner sanctuary access to the heavenly replica that was mirrored in that holy of holy place, in the new covenant. It's an astonishing kind of democratization of the spirit of God and of access to God. There's no special caste of priests in the new covenant, even though there are special officers and callings. All Christians are priests. Male, female, slave-free, Jew, Greek, black, white, rich, poor, young, old. Everyone has had their hands filled with gifts to take into the sanctuary and offer them up in service to God. So that's the first thing about this summary of the faith. The second thing to notice here is that 
as royal priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices, again, meaning sacrifices empowered by, enabled by the Spirit. It doesn't mean, you know, just invisible things. In this case, it just means empowered by the Spirit. But here's here's the point. The whole Christian life is priestly work. Think how hard these priests had to work in the Old Testament. It was difficult work. The whole Christian life is conceived as priestly labor, a spiritual, sacrificial offering up to God. Nothing in life is excluded from this. All of life, not just gathered worship, but all of life is priestly, sacrificial worship. You might know that Paul refers to this in Romans 12, where he says that in view of the mercy which has made you the people of God, you should offer up your body. By body here, he means your whole self. You should offer up your body as a living, holy sacrifice, pleasing to God. And Paul goes on to say this is your true, your proper, this is your rational, rational form of worship. So, in the time of the pandemic, it's important to understand this. In the profoundest sense, rational worship has not been suspended or withheld. It can be offered 24-7 by priests in the highest heavenly temple. You can present your body a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable, rational form of worship. What we do here is just a sort of earthly mirrored reflection of that. You know, I was thinking about this, and it dawned on me just yesterday that a good part of the New Testament, a good part of it, was written by men who were unjustly, forcibly kept from their public assemblies of worship by the civil magistrates. I mean, think about that. Ephesians, written from prison by Paul. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, the book of Revelation. All written because men were kept by evil authorities under the providence of God from being able to assemble. They were not kept from worshiping, though. They were not kept from worshiping. They were kept from being able to assemble. And God used it to produce a big chunk of the New Testament. Who knows what he's doing now? So, this is all patterned on the fact that Paul tells us Christ gave himself up as a fragrant offering, fragrant incense, sacrifice to God. And we offer ourselves up in and through him. So that perpetual incense offering has not been suspended. Indeed, it cannot be suspended. I mean, think of this priestly sacrificial calling. Hebrews 13 says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips which give thanks to his name. That's another sacrifice, priestly sacrifice, unscathed by the lockdown. These sacrifices are both vertical toward God and horizontal toward our neighbors, toward the world. And so this helps explain a lot of the language, the way Paul thinks 
um, the way a lot of the New Testament writers think. Paul will say, for example, of a gift sent to him by the Philippians, that that gift that he got from, from the Philippians, he says, it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You give someone a gift, right? You're being a priest. That's priestly labor in the sanctuary of God. And Paul speaks of his whole apostolic ministry, his whole church planning ministry among the Gentiles, as a priestly service, he says. This is priestly work. This is in Romans 15, he says. And I am offering up the Gentiles as a a sacrifice to God. So I think it's important to recover this idea of priestly, sacrificial self-offering of our gifts and our treasure unto God. We need to think of ourselves, not just our ordained leaders, we need to think of ourselves as priests, as people perpetually presenting sacrifices to God. Notice, sacrifices, notice the end of verse 5 says this, and this is the third thing I want to point out here about this uh, sort of summary. Sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're never offering some independent sacrifice. Jesus' role as the great high priest is never bypassed. Nothing we ever offer is acceptable in itself. Everything we have and offer, Calvin says, is mingled. Mingled with vice. So as we've said before, it's really important to think, to, to as a... Uh, a scholar that I, I've read over the years says, turn, turn Jesus around in your mind's eye. So you think of Jesus in heaven and you're worshiping him. Turn him around as your elder brother and your great high priest, your forerunner, and then shelter in behind him and enter into the highest heavens behind him. And he presents your prayers and your, your, uh, your broken obedience and your wandering prayers, and all of our weak and feeble efforts, they're gathered up in him, and purified in him, and sanctified in him, and presented in his name before the face of the Father, so that our sacrifices are acceptable only in and with and through the great high priest who's made the one sufficient sacrifice for all time. This is a deeply liberating thing to do. We know our sacrifices are are broken, and weak and ineffective, but they are all gathered up, they are all perfected, they are all presented through Jesus Christ to the Father in the Spirit. And that's why Peter says, you're a spiritual house, a royal priesthood to offer up these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, through, not around, through Jesus Christ. So, we offer these Spiritual sacrifices then through him. One last point on the spiritual house and the spiritual sacrifices. You'll notice they're both sort of tied together uh, in verse 10, which says this. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? That's what the Spirit given at Pentecost does, summons a people out of darkness into the wondrous light and glory of God. There's a great poetic picture of this that we heard in our opening hymn from Wesley where he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon. Flamed with light. 
That summons creates the spiritual house. Right? And then the spiritual house is summoned to declare the praises of him who called us. And the, and the word for declare means to proclaim. Right? To proclaim or declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To declare. To proclaim. It's a form of preaching. That's another thing about all the spiritual sacrifices we make in Christ. They are a form of proclamation, of preaching. So you've got this house summoned out of the darkness, and then it's called to proclaim. Proclaim the goodness and glory of God vertically, and then this declaring, this proclaiming, this preaching also bears down on our evangelical witness, right? The church is called to take the gospel to the nations, to declare God's glory horizontally. That's the goal of Pentecost, to make us witnesses. Make us priests, make us witnesses. Make us a house, make us the offerers of spiritual sacrifices. So let me briefly conclude. This is another, Peter has a bunch of them, the whole epistle is about this, really. It's a key identity text that should form us about, in the church we should ask ourselves, who are we? What is our identity? Where is our identity? This is who we are. This is what we're called to be, a spiritual house. This is what we're called to do, offer spiritual sacrifices. It's an extraordinarily noble calling. Again, it's indicative what God has done, and then imperative, go do this. You are a spiritual house. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. Now you are summoned to offer up these spiritual sacrifices. So then, holy royal priesthood of the Most High God, declare his glory among the nations. Through all creation, his triumphs sing till all earth's peoples bow in adoration and Jesus Christ is everlasting King. Amen. Amen.